the first tower had already been hit and we watched the second tower being hit live. And I remember at the time going, that is crazy. These are some horrible people on the other side of the planet doing really horrible things. And it didn't occur to me at the time. No way it occurred to me that had anything to do with me and mine. That's Abdul Abdullah. He's an Aussie artist who's fascinated by the concept of being an outsider, something he personally identifies with. When you're in that space, when you're spiraling like that, and you just think that there's something wrong with you and you're different to everyone else, and you're at the point where you're thinking about ending it. There's not clarity in those situations. Abdul's a seventh-generation Australian Muslim with Indonesian and Malay heritage. He's a man who can't be put into a box by any one definition. And it wasn't until 9-11 happened that we really felt quite a stark difference uh, in how we were perceived from the outside. Abdul works across portraiture, photography and painting to express his experiences of growing up Muslim in Australia, confronting the prejudices that have marginalised Muslim youth. The platform, I get to say stuff and people listen, it's wild. His provocative art has struck a chord around the world and even been censored by politicians. It can go wrong, like I had work in Mackay. Uh, in 2019 that there was a mischaracterization of the work that people like George Christensen took of great offense to and then the discourse got really toxic. Abdul's part of the new ABC TV series Space 22 which explores art therapy as a means of improving mental well-being. A picture paints a thousand words and Abdul's got a lot to say. I don't need happiness necessarily, I need purpose and that will give me a fulfilling life. Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Before we kick this off, I just want to say thanks so much to everyone who's taken 15 to 90 seconds out of their day to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It boosts us up the ranks massively and makes a huge difference to how many people we can reach with these potentially life-saving stories. So thank you. And for those who haven't got around to it, please, if Youngblood has delivered you some value, let us know on there. Cheers, legends. Trigger warning, if you find anything spoken about in today's episode distressing, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Abdul, what was it like growing up in Australia as a Muslim pre 9 11? A suburb that I grew up in in Perth, and it was really a mix of like Asian kids, Islander kids, Muslim kids, where there's a bit of crossover, Aboriginal kids, and uh, and white kids. But the the white kids were the Aussies, so none of us identified really as Aussies. But we all kind of had a lot in common, and we all hung out in the same places, and it wasn't really too much of an issue. And I was kind of too young to understand any of the politics of it. And, and something that I've said before is like half my family married Italians and there was a lot of crossover there. I think about like Greek Orthodox Church, our dads and grandfathers had big beers and stuff like that. There wasn't so much of a difference. And it wasn't until 9-11 happened that we really felt quite a stark difference uh, in how we were perceived from the outside, really. So is that real melting pot of cultures when you were a little kid? How do you remember uh, perceiving that and perceiving difference when you were that young and, and growing up with so many different people from different backgrounds? Did you think about that at all or you just saw people as people or didn't even really notice it? Yeah, it didn't really notice much of the difference. Like we all had our different sports as well and that was a big connector. I boxed when I was a kid and the boxing gym was a, a real a real mix, all sorts of different ethnicities. We're all kind of broke. That was the one thing that we had in common. But you didn't really think about uh, those differences too much. It was kind of the, you thought about who was a better boxer or not, but otherwise you weren't really thinking about your ethnicity or your cultural or religious background. It was all just everyone in there together. Mm. And what sort of a kid were you? Honestly, like in primary 
school and stuff, I was like a little nerd. Always wanted to follow the rules, very conscious of teachers and things like that. And I went to a few different like primary schools, went to one in Sydney, Malik Fahad Islamic School, which was quite a strict conservative school. And then when I was back in Perth, I was just uh, at my local public school um, and uh, very much a nerd. But that kind of shifted in high school a little bit. And it was a strange experience where I think it was also where I grew up. So I went to a high school that was like an hour away from where I lived because I had a special art program. So it was a public school, but it had a like a scholarship, but it, I got to go there from out of the catchment and do extra art classes, which I really enjoyed. But I still came with a sensibility of where I grew up. So I got into some little scraps very early on in the first year of high school. And that kind of put me on, not a path, but it created an adversarial relationship with the deputy principal and the principal at the time. And that sort of change directions for me a little bit so when people think you're the naughty kid i think it's really much easier to become the naughty kid and yeah, i was still i was sure. never that naughty but like it would it sort of went that way and then that sort of aligned itself with what happened in 9-11 when the perception of muslims in australia or around the world really shifted quite a bit and then it, it went from being like a naughty brown kid to a naughty muslim brown kid and then that perception expanded to police security anyone who works in a shopping center so that yeah it all it all got a little bit more hectic after that mm. uh, that's fascinating so you went from being a kid who was quite conservative and didn't want to step on anyone's toes and sort of toe that line and and play by the rules to someone who more or less felt like you had no choice but to do the opposite just by virtue of your your culture and your religion and, and who you are yeah, it was. It's it's funny looking back on it so often with my peers too, where it was so much easier to be tough. And I'm I'm not like a tough macho guy. Like I don't want to put that out there. But when you're a kid, when you're sort of perceived of as threatening, and you feel that, and I didn't have the words to articulate it at the time. It was just it just felt like a bunch of people didn't like me. And so when a bunch of people don't like you, it's much easier just to dislike them back and to be a little mm -hmm. bit, uh, be a little bit more staunch or to to project that out there and be that person as opposed to just accept it. Like you're not wanting to. Yeah. Cause you feel like, like you're, like, your back's against the wall and you're being told what you are. And there's a tendency there to say, Oh, if you think I am this and I am the bad kid, then I'll show you how bad the bad kid is and play into that identity, that route of being adversarial and having that conflict and, and that us and them mentality, which I know you talk about a lot, just because you feel like it's being forced upon you and that's not even, who you are or what you deserve. Yeah, exactly. You become framed in a particular way and then you almost accept that because if you don't accept it, it's like capitulating, bending down to your oppressor. So instead of bending down to your oppressor, you resist, you get a little bit of meanness in you, I guess. Mm. When did art first come into your life? Also, all through high school, uh, I did extra art classes, but I never thought that I was going to be an artist. And both my older brothers, they studied art at university. So they were there when I was in high school and in primary school. So it was something that was always around. My mother now teaches pottery and teaches painting. She didn't at the time, but like it was always an interest of hers. So I was always involved in it. But it wasn't until after almost finishing a journalism degree, did like two and a half years of journalism degree and then picking up an elective in art. That was only when I kind of really fell in love with it and decided to pursue that professionally. So when I jumped over from journalism to art, I really put my head down and uh, concentrated on turning it into a vocation. Yeah, okay, interesting. Being an artist, you're allowed to have a lot more of an opinion than a journalist. Not that yeah. mainstream media really sticks to that anymore, but I guess journalism is meant to be, <laughs> be about being objective rather than making statements. Um, but it seems, a, seems like you, yeah, had stories to, you had stories to express though, like you knew you wanted to tell stories and be curious about society, but there's like different ways of doing that. 
Yeah, I've said that for me, art fulfilled a similar function to journalism, except it wasn't burdened by objectivity. So I could be as subjective, reactive, emotional as I like. And I got to also be curious because I'm a bit of a sticky beak by nature. But with art, I got to be curious about whatever it is that I wanted, whether it was political or whether it was just like a leaf on the street. If I found it interesting, I could explore that. Yeah, you've got that free reign. Uh, It's interesting because I haven't thought about that parallel before, but I can see the similarity there. What's the most beautiful thing to you about being Muslim? I never speak too much about the nuts and bolts of the religion. Like in my art practice, I talk about the perception of that religious identity and I identify as a Muslim. And the beautiful things about the religion, I really see it's very domestic. It's in the family. It's these these relationships that build. But the day-to-day stuff, if you hung out with me for a week, you wouldn't see me do much Muslim stuff. Like I might say a little bit of a prayer before I get in the car or something like that, but I'm not, there's not heaps of the religion that is outwardly expressed by me. So it's sort of, um, in terms of like peaceful coexistence and that sort of thing, there's some really beautiful things. The idea of like submitting to a greater power, I think that's a pretty broad way of looking at things that people think about that a lot. Really, I don't think about the religion that much, to be honest. Mm. Tell us about watching those attacks on 9-11, where you were and... Just take us through when you saw that happen. Oh, man, I was at home. Uh, Both my older brothers were over and we were playing Gran Turismo. I remember that. We were trying to set like a quarter mile time. And then my sister gave us a call and she uh, said, you know, turn on the TV. And then we watched it. We watched it all. The first tower had already been hit and we watched the second tower being hit live. And I remember at the time going, that is crazy. These are some horrible people on the other side of the planet doing really horrible things. And then didn't occur to me at the time. No way it occurred to me that had anything to do with me and mine. But then from the next day, it became obvious that we were going to experience some things. The first place that was attacked afterwards or vandalized was the Sikh temples. They threw a pig's head in the local Sikh temple in Canningvale because people didn't know the difference between Sikhs and Muslims. And then, you know, within a couple of days, the local mosque was attacked, spray painted and vandalized. My mother was assaulted. She had her scarf torn off in the city mm. in, in Perth. She doesn't wear a scarf so much anymore. It was a visceral thing. And the communities I was a part of, and even like in Perth, which is so far away from everything, really felt under siege. It felt dangerous to be outside especially if you were like visibly Muslim or had Muslim signifiers, especially like my mum who wore a scarf, she stands out. And so people would be yeah, very aggressive and unkind to her. That attack on the Twin Towers specifically, did that feel like an attack on what you loved when you watched that? Like, did you, as an Australian, feel like you were being attacked? No, I didn't. Like, you got to keep in mind, I was like 14 or something. I wasn't really thinking about the politics. I wasn't across Desert Storm. I wasn't across the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. I didn't really know what was happening in Saudi Arabia. And it, like, it, just, of course, it yeah. just seemed like another crazy thing that was on the news. I didn't feel attacked. It really felt like something out of a movie. It just seemed like something that was happening somewhere else. Now you can reflect on it, though. What changed in that moment, specifically for you and your family? We'd always experienced a little bit of racism, less to do with the color of my skin when I was younger and more to do with the socioeconomic area that I was from. So we were just like broke kids feeling uncomfortable in nice places. Like that's, that's a pretty universal and, and, and common thing. But the, the experience of being unwelcome, that became palpable kind of everywhere. My father's got an interesting experience because he's a white Australian. He's sixth generation Australian. I'm a seventh generation Australian. He converted to Islam in by the early 70s, 71 or 72. But, you know, he's white with Australian accent, so he doesn't experience 
the race stuff. But like after 9-11, you know, he's experiencing all the uh, the resentments, having a public face and being out in the public. And, you know, he got visited by, I don't know who they were. There was like Australian Federal Police. I don't know if it was ASIO or like the state body, but about his trips to Afghanistan that he took. And he went to Afghanistan when he was a hippie in the 60s. You like, that was the experience. You feel like you're always watched and you're never welcome. So that was that was strange. And 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 I could see it, I keep referring like to my, my peers, like I'm part of a a generation of kids in Perth. And I can't speak broadly on this, but like there's a, because of who my dad was, like he's a white convert and he's an early convert. Um, he had a lot of friends that were converts. So I knew a bunch of kids who were my age who had a, a white father and a Southeast Asian or South Asian mother. So we had family that was Muslim and family that was non-Muslim. And it was really easy to see the difference in how we were treated by the outside, but having a broad cultural experience and also having feet in different camps, so to speak, and an understanding perhaps a better understanding of the different camps because of our familial ties it was really hard to to experience that difference and i could see it with my friends too where they would go in a few different ways all different marginalized directions but I, and i can see it here in sydney now too where where they either went and this is all anecdotal where they would either like retreat into sort of a, a pious religious conservatism or they would align with another marginalized group for example, like an outlaw motorcycle club or something like that, where they were they're they're looking for clubs that will that where they'll be accepted. If they're not accepted in broader society, they'll find a club that's accepting. And religion is a club that accepts all. And also, those other marginalised groups will will sort of take on disaffected young men. And that that is a a thing that's happening now in a whole bunch of different marginalised groups. You're seeing it with right wing groups at the moment, really taking in disaffected young. Young men especially. Well, it totally makes sense because the thing we want above all else is connection and community. And if you're not getting that from general society or if you're being ostracized or targeted, there's going to be that tendency to go and find it somewhere else. And especially if there's quite a bit of anger surrounding that, you're then vulnerable to being manipulated and being used by certain groups who might know how to offer you a sense of that. But then, you know, for example, like the outlaw motorcycle groups might then get you to also go and do their dirty work initially to be part of that crew as one example. But it's just young men who are angry and feel lost and feel like they don't have an identity and a group and a tribe to go and belong to. And more than anything, wanting that and then finding that with a whole lot of negativity surrounding that. That negativity that you feel in your heart, you start projecting it outwards and then you're gonna get it back and it becomes this real negative cycle. Yeah, feedback loop. Mm. There's an education system. I can't remember who came up with it, but like a, I was reading it a few years ago, uh, the ABCs of self-determination, autonomy, belongingness, and competence, and our need for these three things, like beyond food, shelter, and whatever. Mm. So, and, and these type of, groups like that they, they they provide these these things where you get to be your own boss you get to belong to a group and you get to express how good you are at something whether that's like criminality and violence or whether it's like piety and religion or you know it's it's or well, like because then you have then or, you have value even though you can look at it and say well that's a terrible thing why would anyone do that and if you don't have an experience of it yourself then it's very hard to understand but the reason why people do that is because they're looking for exactly the same things that other people get through a much more socially acceptable means because we're, we're all human and that's what human nature is, is, is that need to belong and that need to feel valued and that need to have community and we'll do it any way we can.
because the alternative, that isolation and, and feeling like we don't have any of that is almost worse than death. Yeah, totally. And you can see people getting lonely. And I talk about an accumulative sense of isolation that, that builds into resentments and builds into really nasty situations. Um, mm. And it's something which is, it's not justifying any of these nasty behavior, but you need to be able to explain where it comes from and contextualize if you're going to combat that or if you're going to make sure these situations don't become really bad. Most people, I think, at their core are good and they can be severely damaged in lots of ways and pulled every which way and, and manipulated and convinced to act out in ways that can be perceived as evil, but it's not because they're a horrible person and they wanted to do harm and do damage. It's because they're reacting to the way they've been treated and, and trying to find answers when none are presented. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's very few people that see themselves as the bad guy. Like there's, there's not many James Bond villains out there. No. So how did that affect your mental health when all of that started raining down and you were being seen as the enemy and getting those dirty looks and your mum was getting humiliated in the street? How did that affect you mentally? Only in hindsight do I really understand uh, what was going on. And I don't even fully understand it. Like I said, not like, like not an ex expert. This is all sort of really anecdotal. But I think the my issues or my experience with mental health and, and the dips in mental health and the depression and these sorts of things, I think it's partly genetic. I think I've inherited it a fair bit. But also a cumulative sense of alienation, I think, really affected it. And resentments based off how I saw my mother being treated and things like that. And to an extent, to the way that I was treated, even though that wasn't front of mind, like that didn't really occur to me at all till, till way later. But they didn't really manifest themselves to a point where I sought help until I was in my early 20s. Uh, and I think I might have already been in art school at this point. So I wrote a letter to my GP. I was in a very, very low state. Um, I, I wrote a list of my, of my symptoms because I didn't really want to talk. I just sort of had to write it out. Uh, then he... Uh, sent me to a uh, like a counselor or a therapist, and my first experience with um, mental health treatment went really poorly. Actually, it's it's kind of funny in hindsight. Like I don't, I was like I went there and I had a meeting with someone and we had a chat. So I went for ages and we were talking. And I reckon that I'm a pretty chatty person, um, and I love ghost stories as well. And that somehow in the therapy session we started talking about ghosts, and then I started to tell my own ghost stories. And the, the therapist or counselor got really excited about it and they writing something in their pad and then they wrote something like and underlined it. And then they went to get their prescription pad and they put the pad down there, their like notepad down on the table between us, went to go get their prescription pad. And of course, I'm nosy. I'll grab their, their notepad and have a look what it says. And they just written magical thoughts in capital letters and like underlined it and then put me on some pretty heavy medication. Ah. And like I was getting my, my head scared. And then uh, and that, that really didn't work for me. Um, so that made so you lose faith in it? Yeah, yeah. And the medication, I mean, I didn't get the medication that I find. It just made me sick. And then I just, and also the the shame associated with it. Like at the time, uh, my job, which I was doing was I worked at a boxing gym and I was work. I didn't fight anymore, but I worked as a trainer at a boxing gym. And it's a pretty masculine, kind of a macho environment. And yeah, like, of course. Not that much of a person. But there's like, there's a shame associated of feeling broken because like no one else was talking about their heads. No one, like this wasn't, a comfortable situation conversation to have and i didn't really feel comfortable speaking about it mm. with anyone like even my gp i had to write it down because i didn't want to say it because there was so much shame attached to it what about in um, your family so what do you feel that there was shame attached to it from a familial perspective i think honestly at the time 
Yes, but I, I think that 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 my perception of that was misplaced. I think that if I had uh, spoken to my family, uh, especially particular members of my family that are really very empathic and very understanding, I think that would have been okay. But at the time, when you're in that space, when you're spiraling like that, and you just think that there's something wrong with you and you're different to everyone else, and you're at the point where you're thinking about ending it, there's not clarity in those situations. So I, I felt very isolated at the time, and I tried to bury those feelings, just sort of crush them into a ball and continue training and yeah. getting my head punched in as a sparring partner. Uh, and then until I eventually got some proper help a few years later where I started to see a, a counsellor regularly and that that really helped. I've tried different medications over the years, um, but the talk therapy has been, for me anyway, has been the most consistently helpful thing. And have you ever talked about that stuff with people that you box with and people from the gym since then? Yeah, a little bit. Like we t- we touch on things. We're all a fair bit older now. Like yeah. uh, it's all a different crew that's fighting and training there now. I would have thought you could bet that there would have been quite a few of the other boys there who were going through their own stuff that they also didn't want to bring up. Maybe that's partly why they're there boxing in the first place. 100%. We almost joked about it because like all the fighters there, we'd all been fighting since we were kids. And I wasn't fighting at the time anyway, but we all started very young. And when you start when you're young, there's all sorts of different, like, you want to prove yourself sort of thing. But we always, it's always curious when a guy in his, say, guy in his 40s would come up and say that he wanted to fight professionally and he never had a fight before. And, like, it always meant that something's gone wrong in his life and he has some that he needs to prove to himself. Trying to um, rebuild himself. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like a shout for help, I think, when, when they would come in like that, looking to, to actually and lay hands And, like we just said before, though, as well, you're looking for community. I mean, you found that in the boxing gym. I'm part of uh, a Muay Thai gym and I also go to Krav Maga and I find that there as well. So it's just another example of yeah. it where you're bonded around a common goal and an activity and there's a lot to be said for wanting to be a part of that as well just because it's a break from your work and your family and it's something else you're interested in with other like-minded people that's that same theme but that's something that you could see as being a positive healthy thing i think like sports and my personal opinion combat sports are really good for that sort of thing and it's very it's an equalizing space most people have got two arms two legs and a head you get good by how much time you put in so yeah. that creates like a brotherhood or a sisterhood that creates a, a family outside your family so i think that's that's only a good thing Besides the CTE or whatever, the getting punched in the head does, but it's yeah, uh, that's I, not great. I think the, the good outweighs the bad. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I like. I've only recently got my nose fixed because I my septum was just like a like the letter Z. Oh, <laughs> now, ouch. Like, now I can breathe through. Oh, it. Well, your yeah. nose is looking good, brother. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> so your experience of those mental health struggles was that diagnosed as being depression. Uh, in those early ones, I didn't really give me a proper diagnosis but they're like well, one thing which has been consistent is the depression that is something which again in hindsight I, I've experienced since I was very little to open up completely about it like I, and I don't really speak about it much at all but like, I can remember self-harming when I was like eight years old and stuff like that and not really knowing what I was doing until like much later thinking about it contextualizing it a little bit because when you're little you have no idea like it's just you're just doing it like you've got no words even when I was in my early 20s I didn't have the words to articulate it. It wasn't until I sort of really looked into it, expanded my vocabulary and uh, got to understand the, the context of things. And and context is, is so important, I think. And we were talking before about the Muslim experience in Australia. So often they're thought about the Muslims 
and the communities I'm part of think about as one monolithic hegemonic group that all have the same beliefs and the same sort of religion and the same politics, but they're as diverse as any other group and they're as complex as any other group. And I think um, people do Muslims and anyone a disservice when they start to see them as one dimensional. And but that that happens across the board where we project a one dimensionality to a group or we project criminality or an inhumanness to a group to justify. Well, because we um, want a simple answer and we want to put people in a yeah. box. We want to put people in a, in a box and then put that away because then we don't feel like it has to scare us and we feel like we can control it and we can simplify it. And of course, the reality is that it's so much more complex than that, but it's not as good of a headline or as quick and easy of a fix as it is to just say, paint everyone with this brush. If you're one of them, then that means that you're all the same and, and there you go. That's a lot easier to do and that sort of rhetoric, people will align behind and become emotional and, and make decisions about rather than a much more rounded, shades of grey, realistic type of take on the fact that it's actually incredibly broad and complex. That's not as sexy a headline. I remember really thinking about it with my, with my actual visual arts practice where it started to look more at mental health things. Uh, in 2017, when I painted Craig Campbell for the Archibald, so Craig was a police officer in the Cronulla riots, but um, had some really uh, had some big mental health issues, and then ended up having a psychotic break while he was working as a police officer, and then got sort of left the police or discharged, and then was in a long-running court battle with the police union to to pay for his mental health treatment afterwards, which he eventually won, which was really positive uh, and really good for him. But seeing that one, he was a guy who was. Uh, very complex and did something really heroic on a day where he saved the lives of a couple of guys who were being bashed in the train. Um, but also he was like walking around with a gun on his hip on the edge of having a psychotic break for a long time. So th there's there's complexity to everyone and that's mm. what drew me to him. He's such an interesting and he's, I really like him. He's such a great guy, but it, he's complex and, and everybody is. And so much complexity to art and your work as well. How has that been able to help you heal and not only heal, but helped make you, you along the way, doing the art and expressing yourself through that? Well, it's it's those ABCs of self-determination, I think, coming right back to the fore where you've got that, I, I'm lucky to have a job or do a job where I have complete autonomy. I get to do what I want when I want, which is it's a rare privilege. I've got the belongingness. I feel like I'm part of different communities, like artistic communities from all different walks of life. We all kind of come together. It's a strange experience being an artist where you feel like you have access to everyone, but you're kind of a little bit uncomfortable everywhere. So that mm. that suits me and how, how my sensibilities. And then the, the competence I get to, like when I was in school, I was always like the best drawer in the class. I'm not quite the best drawer in my family, but like I get to, be competent at something and people I get to make something and people go oh that's nice you did something good so I get that I get that positive feedback you've got that channel to say something as well oh 100 percent the the platform I get to say stuff and people listen it's wild I get invited on podcasts like this or like do the tv show do studio 22 yeah the platform is something which I never expected and it's um it's a responsibility well as well and it's an obligation you got to do good things with it. You can't just be too selfish with these sorts of things. But you can feel something, have something happen in your life or touch you or, or have a thought or speak to someone and, and think, I need to put this into a photograph or a portrait or a painting. And you can actually just go and do that in a brilliant way and in a way where it will have an audience and people will see that and then have their own reaction to that. That's a pretty beautiful and powerful thing to have 
in your life. Like you've got somewhere to go and put that as soon as you think that or feel that. Yeah, I, I, I'm so appreciative of that, uh, having the space and the platform to do these sorts of things. And I really love the discussion about it too. And, and I, I consider my works offerings and offerings to an ongoing conversation, an ongoing discourse about a whole bunch of different things. It's like that part of that visual history of this country. But it, it can go wrong. Like I had work in Mackay. Uh, in 2019 that um, there was a mischaracterization of the work that people like George Christensen took a great offense to. And then the discourse got really toxic where normally I'm open, I'm really happy about open discourse and even people interpret my work completely different. But in that case, got really nasty to the point where there was like physical threats being made to the 70 year old volunteers who work at the gallery. And um, and it became beyond a conversation and it just became a very threatening experience. So it can go really badly, but I think that's kind of par for the course when it when it comes to having any type of public discussion about these sorts of things yeah we are playing with those sensitivities and that's the thing about things that need to be said and often they're not said because that's uncomfortable and we would rather ignore the elephant in the room or try to pretend like it's all good and part of your job as a as an artist is to bring those conversations to light and not just brush it under the rug and of course the reaction to that sometimes from those who would rather that you just would and you would toe the line like you did when you were a little kid is don't do that because we don't want to talk about those things. Yeah, and what, they, what the people like that don't get, and I've had that since I've ever had a public profile at all, and it's never been a huge public profile, but since I've like had any type of exposure to stuff, I've, I've gotten nasty emails mm. uh, telling me to go back to where I come from. It's a, a silly thing, I think, like, I don't know where I'm going to go. And they can get quite threatening at times. It's quite a, like a vicious thing. But what the people who write these things or who reach out to me in such a negative way, that what they don't understand is that this all that does is prove to me the need for that contribution, whether it's me or somebody else. Well, it's ignorance, isn't it, right? And ignorance yeah, is a lack of... I feel bad for them. Ignorance is a lack of understanding. And what you're trying to do through your art is help people to understand better. So... <laughs> When you're still exactly when you're still getting these messages from people, although as I'm sure you're aware, that's a very small minority, and you can't just yeah. think, oh well, everyone still thinks like this, and my work's not having effect. But as long as you're still getting those comments from people, you're like, well, the work's not done because these idiots still just aren't getting their point. Exactly, exactly. It just adds fuel to that fire. So I was just got to keep going and, and it is a minority and even the nasty stuff that I get it could be a handful of people using a whole bunch of different email addresses like I don't know that but it I, it, it also gets outweighed a lot by the positive response like I get so many more positive messages than I do negative ones but you know how it is it's the negative ones that you remember <laughs> like so it's uh yeah because we're wired like that. that to look at the threats and, and remember that sort of thing but I suppose as you get more experience the more that can be water for ducks back hopefully but no one yeah, likes definitely. people saying and that's what it is. nasty stuff like that or, or attacking you by virtue of who you are. And I also think it's pretty ironic to say, go back to where you came from. It's like, this is where I came from, man. Like, yeah, been here totally. for seven well, generations. Been here for 200 years. Yeah yeah, 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 that's right. You know, you are Australian and Australia and what Australia should be is the epitome of multicultural and, and that melting pot and so many different backgrounds and ethnicities that is Australia, that is us, that is what we are, you know, and to suggest anything different is just, I think, missing the point of Australia and what we want Australia to be. Oh, definitely. And oh, it's not aligning with the particular views of some 
of a minority that is threatened by where Australia is going or where it is, and they're not really going outside and and they're not having empathy or understanding or putting themselves in somebody else's shoe, and they're certainly not acknowledging the complexity of other people. They're just sort of flattening them as the other. Yeah. So what points have you made with your art over the years that stand out or what has been said by the work that you've done that you felt needed to be said? So there's a couple of through lines in my practice and one of them actually came from, so like I painted, the first time I got uh, hate mail or like just nasty stuff was when I painted Walid Ali for the Archibald in 2011 when I was 25 and I, again, had no public profile. I so was very surprised by the fact that people like went out of their way to find my contact details and send me nasty stuff. And up until that point, all I was doing was painting pretty pictures of my friends. I wasn't really uh, confident in making work about the politics of things. Um, And when I got those emails, I got really, really upset. But it was Walid who said to me that regardless of the realities of your actions and beliefs, uh, you're going to be perceived of a particular way because of your name and how you look. And so there's no point in getting angry about it. If you want to contribute positively to the conversation, do it with your with your strengths, which is your creative practice. And that gave me the confidence to to pursue that with my art. And the through line from that point was looking at the difference between and understanding the difference between how we're perceived from the outside and the realities of our actions and our beliefs so and how there's a tension between those two things and i've experienced that firsthand with there's a perception of me as some type from a minority of people mind you there's a perception of me as some type of existential threat like a perception of me and people like me but that doesn't align with the reality of my life and what i do and what i believe um and so i've expanded on that and i think that's a pretty relatable thing across the board the idea of being misunderstood that is that is a, a big thing that has gone like throughout my practice like essentially don't judge a book by its cover people feeling misunderstood that's one of our great sort of defining struggles as human beings is is how we're perceived versus how we feel we actually are and what's actually the truth is is the truth what everyone else thinks or is the truth what you think and who's who's got it right who's got it wrong yeah, totally. Like uh, people have asked me who my work is for, and I say my work is for misfits. Like, I kind of actually everyone feels themselves a little bit like a misfit. If you don't, good on you. But like I mean, yeah, <laughs> we all feel a little bit out of place. And you, you talk about being a, an outsider amongst outsiders, and that being a bit of a defining feature of your your work and and who you are as a person as well. Do you think mm. uh, an outsider is always an outsider? Oh, no, like, I don't think an outsider is always an outsider. You saw me partying at the Archibald the other night. I don't look like an outsider. I look <laughs> like I'm in with the crowd. <laughs> and so, so that, like, I don't feel like an outsider in those senses. But, like, but at the same time, all artists, not all, I guess, speaking broadly here, but most of the artists that I speak to feel like an outsider in some particular way or they've got a unique view on the world. And it's it's interesting. I can speak on behalf of myself here and a few of my friends, like, the, our, our eccentricities, which would uh, restrict us in other vocations, yeah. uh, are kind of celebrated in, in the arts. Well, that so makes sense because it, it would be hard to say something different with your art if you didn't see things a bit differently and, and see your place in the world a bit differently. You know, that's where that comes from. Exactly, exactly. So that, there, there is that element of outsider, but you still inside different communities and and when i when i first started using the, the term outsider amongst outsiders it's a bit silly as well but it makes it makes sense like when i was like 
like I was an art student in the Muslim community. So that's like a little bit like you're a bit outside, outside. Well, you're also a Muslim in the art school, but also I was uh, too much, too, a little too boxing for art school. And at the boxing gym, I was a little too art school for boxing. So yeah. it's like, you're always never There's quite levels in, to I it. Think, yeah. Yeah. 100%. And I, and I think everyone feels that to some extent. With art, well, what's been your goal and has that changed? I would like to think that my work is in service of people. And when I make work, I think about that like 12 year old kid, well, you know, early teen kid version of me in suburbs like East Cannington where I grew up or Sunshine in, in Melbourne or, or like Mount Druitt in Sydney or Bankstown or something like that, who is just coming to understand that their story isn't being uh, related or their story isn't being expressed in, in, you know, mainstream on the broad media. They're like, they're, they're not on, they're never going to be in home and away like that type of thing. Yeah. And I, um, and I'm not trying to claim their experience, but I'm doing enough of my doing enough of my stuff that hopefully there's a shared experience there which they can take ownership. And I, I like the idea of taking them taking ownership of an idea and and then relating to that idea, and then hopefully I can assist or contribute to them articulating their context a little bit. So that's that's what I'm thinking of why I make the work in terms of broad goals. I don't i don't really as long as i can keep doing what i'm doing and one of the beautiful things about art is that you can do it till the day you die like i don't have to retire and i'm still i hope to en keep enjoying this for another 60 or maybe not 60 maybe like 40 or 50 years or something like that and then mm. yeah that that is really what i want to do and hopefully you just get better and better and hopefully i don't get too stuffy or stuck in my ways like some of the older artists but me, you, me having a jab at some old people. <laughs> <laughs> Bitchy. But you know, yeah. <laughs> you know what you do it for and who you do it for, and you don't think that will change. No, I, I don't want to say that it won't change because I've I've found myself changing. Like, like I remember, so my older brother, he does amazing art. There's 10 years between us in age. So he, but he started making art a little bit after me. Like, but... I remember one time he and I were visiting another friend's studio, this older artist, um, and he pulled me aside, the older artist pulled me aside and completely unsolicited, he said, don't worry, Abdul, one day you'll make more poetic work like your brother. And that really offended me. I was like, who are you telling me I'm going to make poetic work or that I want to? My work at the time was like a little bit spikier than it is now. But I've seen, I have seen that happen, and I wouldn't necessarily call my work poetic now. But it, it is a little bit gentler. It is talking to the heart of things a little bit more, less mm. about specific political issues or things that have happened in Australia or globally, although that, that all plays into it. Uh, I, the, the, the language has become a little bit universal, and that's, that's come with a, a little bit of age, a little bit of sort of chilling out a little bit, um, but also uh, working more internationally. Like now most of my shows happen overseas. And I can't use Australian Pacific signifiers because they, they the audiences there sense. won't have the context. Yeah. So I'm having to be a little bit broader. That's a beautiful thing, though, how your art grows along with you, and of course makes sense that as you mature and soften in some ways, and maybe harden in others, and change your perspectives, then you reflect that with your art, and it's an expression of you, and it's an expression of everything you are and what you come from, and that that's always growing and progressing. Um, that's one of the most amazing things about art for me, I think. Yeah, it's a really flexible thing to do, which I really like. And you've got so much freedom to work in all these different spaces. So you never feel limited. And essentially, you're doing it for you. Uh, so you've got that ownership. It, yeah, I, 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 I can't imagine what else I would be doing if I wasn't, if I wasn't doing art. Mm. 
and you've been on this new ABC TV show, Space 22, which is all about art therapy and its impact on well-being and mental health. What's your experience been like being a part of that? Oh, that was a really fascinating experience. So they're calling it art as therapy. So that what they've got is, uh, I think there was like eight participants in there who had tried different types of treatment or like they have different experiences with mental health and uh, giving a go at making art and seeing how they, they relate to that. So I'm, I'm on the first two episodes and I act like the introduction to art to kind of prove that it's not so wanky or just be a little bit relatable, I guess. And we made a whole bunch of different artworks and we just talked about the ideas of how we can express ourselves visually. And, um, and I really enjoy that process of people unpacking an idea and then translating it into an art object, whether it's a, onto a piece of paper or a sculpture or that sort of thing or a collage. It's all about that translation and uh, communicating an idea. And these were the things that we got to unpack and we had some really fascinating conversations. It was a lot of hard work. Like we, we got really deep into things and deep into discussions about people's experiences. Um, uh, but I think that we made some really fantastic artworks and there's some really fantastic artists, artists amongst those participants. Mm. And what did the opportunity to make that art and, and have those discuss discussions and talk about it in that way, how did that affect the people who came on the show? I really think it was a positive a positive thing like everyone there there was a lot of people at the beginning who were just a little bit resistant or a little bit uncertain that art like this thought it was wanky or they just thought it was all nonsense and it it wasn't going to be any good but just the process of making working with your hands and talking and then it, it i think it comes down to those abcs again like that sense of ownership over an idea and then having complete control which is something which i like i do a lot of stuff working in schools as well and in outreach programs and one of the things in particular outreach programs with the art class is that in if you're in a juvenile justice center or if you're in a situation where you don't have control of your day-to-day -day life uh making an artwork that's an area where you've got complete control you've got complete autonomy and i think in that process uh you can really sort of center yourself a little bit and i think that can be really really important and then of course the belongingness and competence so that, like that comes in it like that sort of group activity the idea the communal aspect of making art and then the, the competence of you know getting better at something and i and i think those three things really applied in this situation with this group of people who, even the people that were resistant, they uh, they enjoyed the process and saw the value in it. Mm. Yeah, beautifully said. And then getting into that flow state as well, which obviously you found, you found flow through your art and that's one of the most pleasurable states that we can achieve as human beings where you're pushed to your limit in terms of being challenged but not so much that you can't do it and you believe in what you're doing and then that's when you lose track of time and you're in flow and the more you can make your life about that and have that experience the more fulfilled and, and satisfied you are in your day to day and a lot of people don't even experience that much in their life or if they do they can actually pinpoint the time where it happened and you've created a life for yourself where that's your thing uh, that's that's a pretty beautiful thing and to introduce other people to a way of finding that is pretty special and obviously boxing is another example yeah totally the flow state is only something which i like learned of the term a few years ago but it, it applied to so much of what i've done and what i do and i find it so interesting when i'm painting or i'm making work and i'm always like listening to podcasts or music or something like that and and when i haven't noticed that the podcast or the music has stopped and i've just continued working like it's such a like a rewarding and joyful experience. It's, it's hard to really describe, yeah, but you know exactly what I mean, that once you're in it and 
And it's that, I guess it's also like a bit of a dopamine hit too, because you are achieving something. You feel like what you're doing is worthwhile and you have purpose. And I think having purpose is such a, an amazing motivational factor, like something which I've come to terms with, I think, and I'm not a hundred percent around it yet, but like, I don't need happiness necessarily. I need purpose. And that will give me a fulfilling life. Mm, I could not agree more with that. What do you belong to now? How, what do you feel like you belong to? I belong definitely to a community of artists and all the artists that I know are like a ragtag, mixed up, diverse group of people from all sort of walks of life. Um, like, I, you know, I've got my family, like there's, there's no one that I'm closer to than my family. And even in my professional sphere, like I happen to show with a gallery, like Yabu's gallery that is like a family, like the, the owner of the gallery is like, yeah, he's. I, I feel like we're we're brothers or he's like my uncle or something like that. Like, it's just, I've happened to land on my feet, found myself in these sort of communities where I feel very accepted. And that is, that has been very good for my, like my heart and my experience. Although I still see a therapist and I think that's very important. Beautiful, man. Well, I really love the way that you've spoken about mental health and overcoming those insecurities you had around opening up around that, especially when you were in your early 20s and how difficult that was. Talking about being Muslim and being ostracized and targeted and that whole side of it as well. And then the art, there's so much that goes into your story and there's a lot that sort of flows from one to the other and connects it all together. And I suppose that's why your art's so powerful. And when you speak, it's like you, you speak with intention and there's a lot of meaning in what you say and what you do. So got a lot of respect for you and um, just wanna yeah acknowledge you for what you've created and, and what you continue to create and for the way that you speak about mental health as a, a young man from your background because um, that's really important for others who can relate to you to hear. Oh, thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate that. And, and thanks for having me on. I think yeah, these are important conversations to have. And hopefully us talking about these sorts of things and people like us talking about these sorts of things, that next generation of kids, maybe they'll lessen those insecurities about talking openly and, and getting help if they need it. There's nothing wrong with asking for a little bit of help. Absolutely, man. That's the hope. Thank you, brother. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you're getting some value out of the show, please help us out with a quick rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Everything we do is recorded in video, so follow Youngblood Men's Mental Health on Instagram and Facebook and Youngblood Mental Health on TikTok. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and please leave us a comment or send us a message if these stories resonate. We'd love to hear from you. You can sign up to our e-news through our website, youngbloodmedia.com.au. And most importantly, please share the podcast with anyone in your life who might need it. We're all about reaching as many people as we can. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.